What happens when distrust for the government meets misinformation meets an ongoing investigation into the Aryan nations? You get an 11-day standoff on Ruby Ridge between the federal government and a former Green Beret, which led to casualties, more distrust, and a rise in anti-government militia and radicals all across the United States. Today we tell the story of Randy Weaver and his run-ins with the ATF, the U.S. Marshals, and eventually the FBI. We'll discuss Weaver's beliefs, shed some light on the crimes he actually committed, and take a look at how he was portrayed by the feds and the media. This scary and tumultuous standoff may have ended on August 31st, 1992, but the backlash and repercussions stemming from this incident would be felt for years to come. And over the next four weeks, we'll cover these tragic and deadly events. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. Mike's jerked off so much, he's practically sawed off his own shotgun. Stick around. Unlike Randy Weaver's, however, his is not a federal crime. This is Necronomapod. I hear what is like a gunshot going off in my ear, and a mom just drops to my side. I knew, I knew what had happened to her immediately. I thought it was the end for all of us at that point. The Ruby Ridge standoff became a kind of founding myth of the radical right. It not only made the government look bad, it was bad. People, whatever views they have, whatever illegal activities they have, should not be shot down by government snipers when they are not actively threatening the life of somebody. The radical right uh, views itself as being in a, a battle to the death with the federal government. Ruby Ridge, for them, was the opening shot of that war. It's officially May. We got some big things going, boys. Yeah? A new Tell us about it. $10 Patreon <laughs> tier. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, people who are not patrons wouldn't oh, even know what the fuck that means. That's but true. if they join Patreon, they would know exactly what that sound means. Uh, more incentive to join. So as of May 1st, we launched a new Patreon tier, a $10 level. If you join at the $10 level, you would have gotten this episode early and ad-free. This one we're listening to right now? Right now, Dave. No fucking way. <laughs> Early and ad-free. Amazeballs. We would also send you official Necronomapod sticker. You will also get a once-a-month uh, once video power or a happy hour with us. It might be a power hour, let's be honest. Wow. Happy hour with us. And you'll get exclusive downloads to Necronomapod smartphone wallpapers if you're interested in those. So... That was by popular demand. People have been asking for a higher level uh, Patreon tier. They wanted some episodes early. We weren't really in, at the uh, position to do that for a while, but we got ahead of ourselves, got some episodes done. So if you want episodes a few days early, if you want them ad-free, if you want to have a one-hour video chat with us a month, if you want some stickers, if you want some uh, smartphone wallpapers, then go ahead and sign up for that new $10 tier. Here's how it works. If you are already at the $5 tier in May, just go ahead and up your patronage to the $10 level, and it will only charge you for that, that month an extra $5. You will not have to pay a full $10, so it will only charge you the extra 5 If you are already a patron who, who uh, subscribes for 10 or more a month, you need to go in and just manually upgrade your uh, patron tier to the $10 level. You won't have to pay any more. Just go ahead and manually upgrade it. If you guys have any issues 
obviously reach out to us on social media or on Patreon, and we'll be happy to assist you with that. But hope you guys enjoy it. We appreciate everyone that's supported us thus far. And, uh, you know, plenty of fun content. Three bonus shows a month. It's good stuff. Great intro. Good stuff. Yeah. I didn't talk about fast food for once, so there's that. Let's change pace. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So we're starting something different, I think, uh, for the first time ever, kind of here. We're going to do a little bit of a series over the course of the next four weeks. And this was kind of Ian's brainchild. And if I might quote Ian from last week, he's more excited for this than he was for Jonestown. Wow. That's really saying something. Mm-hmm. Ian, can you speak to this? That This is a subject that I've wanted to do since the beginning. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Not just a subject, me. like a series. We got we got yeah. three topics, four weeks, all interconnected, all connected. Because why? Well, yeah, because I initially wanted to do Oklahoma at some point, but mm-hmm. then the more I kept thinking about it, I'm like, you can't do it without talking about Ruby Ridge and then doing Waco after that. So it's a whole saga of bullshit, and I'm super fucking excited to to get into it. So for the month of May, for at least the fourth, we got, I think I we have five Sundays in May. Yeah. The first four Sundays are going to be Ruby Ridge. And we don't usually give out these teasers like this, but you know, it is what it is. Ruby Ridge, Waco, and then two weeks on the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. And it's all yeah. connected through what we talk about today. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. This, it, it's going to, I don't know, we're going to have to find another subject for me to be this pumped about. I don't know what it's going to be. Let me think future, about it. But yeah see what i can come up with come up with one yeah i put my thinking cap on and then we also have we have tentatively scheduled something fun for the end of the month another big name person but we're not going to give that away because card subject to change as they say in the wrestling business i don't even remember who that is well don't worry about it neither do i well (laughs) mike knows apparently i do because i'm the only one who fucking keeps the schedule around here someone's got to keep you buffoons on track <laughs> All right, let's quit wasting time, Ian. Let's dive into porn star Ruby Ridge now on the stage. <laughs> Coming to the main stage, Ruby. Randy Weaver was a former Iowa factory worker and U.S. Army combat engineer and Green Beret. He moved with his wife and four children to northern Idaho during the 1980s so they could homeschool their children and escape what he and his wife Vicky saw as a corrupt world. They're in Iowa. How corrupt can it be? Yeah. Right. Well, maybe Hivey was closed that week. I don't know. <laughs> in 1978, his wife, Vicki, who was like the religious leader of the family, began having reoccurring dreams of living on a mountaintop and believed that the apocalypse was imminent. After the birth of their first son, Samuel, the Weavers began selling all their belongings and learning to live without electricity and not even just electricity, like learning to live without running water, plumbing, like all of it. They were going bare bones on. Sounds on their fantastic. Lifestyle. I would love to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds for, great. for an outdoorsman like me, Dave, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to live that way. <laughs> I know how to shit in the, a creek and oh, then use a maple leaf to wipe your asshole. <laughs> I'm an expert at that. Maybe just get like a babbling brook and you got like a, a nature's bidet out there. Right. And Maybe that's you, what you can do. And then do. you can also fill up your water and wash your clothes from the same babbling <laughs> that's right. brook. That's how it works. You go upstream, <laughs> upstream. not downstream. Yeah, right. That's right. You shit downstream, motherfucker. Absolutely. <laughs> upstream, you get the water. Midstream, you wash your clothes. Downstream, you take a poo-poo. Dave, we got this figured out. We can go build we a house right now in the mountains. Absolutely. We're fine. It'd be great. We're fine. 
So they bought 20 acres of land on Ruby Ridge in 1983 and began building a cabin. Their property was located in Boundary County on a hillside on Ruby Creek opposite Caribou Ridge, northwest nearby Naples. And this is like right at the top, almost on the Canadian border, pretty much. It's even called Bordering County, I think, because it borders Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Right Imagine there? you tell people you're moving to Naples. They're like, oh, sweet. I love them. Oh, no, Naples, I- yeah. Idaho. Oh, sorry. oh okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Great. In 1984, Randy Weaver and his neighbor, Terry Kennison, had a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. Kennison lost the lawsuit and was ordered to pay Weaver an additional 2100 in court costs and damages. Kennison in retaliation to this, then wrote letters to the FBI, the Secret Service, and the county sheriff alleging that Randy Weaver had threatened to kill the Pope, the president, and the governor of Idaho. God damn. Holy Trinity. That's some accusations. <laughs> yeah, right? That's, that's some yeah. bold statements happening there. In January 1985, the FBI and Secret Service began an investigation into these allegations that Randy Weaver had made threats against the president and, and other government and law enforcement officials. On February 12th, Randy and Vicki Weaver were interviewed by two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, and the Boundary County Sheriff and his chief investigator. The Secret Service was told that Weaver was a member of the Aryan Nations and that he had a large firearm stock at his residence. Randy Weaver denied the allegations and no charges were filed. The investigation noted that Weaver, so that Randy Weaver associated with Frank Kumnick, who is known to associate with members of the Aryan Nations. Weaver told investigators that neither he nor Kumnick was a member of the Aryan Nations and described Kumnick as that he, quote, associated with the covenant, sword, and arm of the Lord. Which is still kind of part of the Aryan Nations. I think all those whack jobs are all linked together now. Like, that's all still like the same thing. Yeah, so that's what we're because this is kind of a gray area because there's some truth to this, but I'm not sure how much it really matters because when the Weavers moved to Ruby Ridge, they didn't know that the Aryan Nations compound was only 16 miles from them. And the thing about the Aryan Nations is they would hold these large conferences where they accepted all different kinds of white separatist groups to attend. And the Covenant Sword and Arm was one of these groups, and they specifically taught the Christian identity version of Christianity that promotes white people as the master race and everyone else is subhuman. So fine people up here in Idaho. I hate white the, uh, people. They- Awful. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen Megan the Stallion? White people are not the master race, let me tell you. <laughs> do you love Megan the Stallion? I do. <laughs> Well, there was really no one else. I mean, what town was this in? Randy this, Weaver was. This was in Borders, Idaho. What did you say, Dave? Boundary, Boundary County. County. Boundary County. It's like fifty miles from Canada. Of course, they're gonna be by Canada. <laughs> Just trying to get away. And the Christian identity movement and stuff. We're gonna definitely bring that up in uh, Oklahoma City stuff. This is all running themes throughout this whole series we're going to be doing. You know, we we watched that documentary on this, and they had the 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 um, the chart of from yeah. the Christian identity people, like pointing from Satan to Eve and Adam, and then it goes off to the left with Cain. I yeah. forget which Cain and Abel. But one of them shows like the tribes of Israel, and that's where all these these guys think they're like the the white Aryans. They descended from this tribe. 
the other tribe goes off to the left and it's like Satan impregnating Cain like and <laughs> Jews and they're all like actual satanic like these guys are yeah. Im- imbeciles it's nonsense and then at one yeah. point it shows like at, uh uh blacks as subhuman oh yeah of course yeah. they're great people yeah and you look at these people they're the ugliest fucking people you've ever seen in your life and they're the oh, ma- yeah. the master race yeah, well uh, okay they also don't believe in dentists <laughs> well and that's the thing about like the Aryan nations is they they just kind of welcomed all these groups like not all i mean they're all racist yeah but not all of them were violent uh but they brought in everybody it was a mixture of all these racist white separatist groups that they brought in there and i'm not making an excuse for randy weaver at all because uh, he he resonated with some of the ideas that the Christian identity movement talked about, and he associated with these people and, and went to the Aryan Nations compound a couple times. Uh, he never officially became a member of the Aryan Nations, but he did associate with these people. He didn't do himself any favors by associating with them. But at the same no, time, not. you're up in bumfuck where you're around nobody, and they went to like the lo- the most local community that they had, and he found some, you know. I guess, but if you're going to go, you know, mingle with people like that in that community, then you know you you're not doing you yourself any favors. Yeah, you can't yell about it when certain bad things start happening. I don't disagree. Yeah, I mean that's true. I mean, you're bound I would have to showed up in some shit. Yeah. I would have showed up to that first picnic and been like, "What the <laughs> fuck did I get myself into?" You know what? I'm gonna pack up my cooler. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna go back to my non-plumbing, non-electricity. Yeah, right. I'm just gonna drink my beer and I'm gonna piss downstream. <laughs> By myself. You don't want to burn crosses? I, I, I'm not into that. Eh, maybe yeah. some other time. Yeah. Not today. But he did not do himself any favors by you know associating with these people regularly. Nope. No. And I mean, the way that his daughter tells it, as far as I understand, is that the Christian identity thing, some of it resonated with him based on their apocalyptic views on the world. But it didn't. It wasn't the racism stuff as much. That's according to his daughter. I'm. I don't yeah, know. But sure. but wasn't wasn't Vicky he, Weaver like she was pretty like straight by the Bible. Yeah. Um. So I I almost feel like she might have resonated more with these people than he did. You know, and that might have been more his connection. Can't question but, I mean, the Bible. You know, but it's like what you said, Mike. You show up to one to this thing, and there's a bunch of guys wearing Nazi patches on their arm and stuff. You'd be like, yeah. oh, yeah. Check, please. Yeah, Time to leave. I'm out. Well, I'd be like, well, first, is this an open bar? Okay, I'm going to take six beers, and, <laughs> and I'm leaving. I'm going. Bye. They never got how the people in this country with the supporting Nazis. Like, this guy was a gr- Green Beret. He fought for this country yeah. who, you know, vanquished the Nazis 30 years prior. And, 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 and we're just hanging out with people with Nazi armbands on. Right. I just we, never got that stretch. We've mentioned this documentary. Ian, what's the documentary called? We might as well because we all watched it. We've, we're going to reference it throughout this whole thing. It's, it's American Ruby, Experience by PBS, and it's just called Ruby Ridge. Yeah, American Experience, Ruby Ridge by PBS. I mean, they, they show footage of outside this compound, and there's just mm-hmm. Nazi flags flying. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. On February 28th, 1985, Randy and Vicky filed an affidavit with the county courthouse alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the Weaver fam- family. So they were starting to get paranoid about stuff. On May 6, 1985, Randy and Vicky sent a letter to President Ronald Reagan claiming that the Weaver's enemies may have sent the president a threatening letter under a forged signature. 
no evidence of a threatening letter ever surfaced. However, this is where we're going. It's shit's already going to start getting fucking weird with, with what the government's doing here. The 1985 letter was cited by the prosecutor in 1992 as overt act seven of the Weaver family's conspiracy against the federal government, even though that letter didn't exist ever. Here's the catch 22. If they wouldn't have wrote the letter claiming it existed, then it probably never would have been mentioned. Right? Yeah. I, that's (laughs) when you start writing letters like that to people, you're you're exposing yourself. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, yeah, you're bringing attention. I I wouldn't I wouldn't Fil- recommend sending the president letters like that. But. <laughs> right. Yeah. Even the filing an affidavit with the, with the county court alleging that personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into a, attacking the Weaver family. You're on the crazy like, list. You're on the crazy list immediately. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fair. That's a fair statement. But that letter was used in, in what we're going to get into at towards the end here. And it just it never existed. Mm the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms first became aware of the Weaver family in July of 1986 when Randy was introduced to a confidential ATF informant at a meeting at the World Aryan Congress. And this informant portrayed himself as a weapons dealer. Randy had been invited by Frank Kumnick, who was the original target of the ATF investigation. It was Randy's first attendance and over the next three years, Randy and the informant met several times. In July of 1989, Randy invited the informant to his home to discuss forming a group to fight the, quote, Zionist organized government. Zog, for to, short, Zog. Yeah. They always hold up those Zog signs. Yeah, referring to the U.S. government. So saw, Randy's, got some, Randy's got some beliefs going on regardless. Yeah, of, some sure. pictures of him, it says, just say no to Zog. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Coming soon in Necronomapod shop. Just say no to Zog. Yeah. <laughs> in October 1989, the ATF claimed that Randy sold this informant two sawed-off shotguns, which the overall length of the guns being shorter than the legal limits set by federal law. There's federal worth- gun laws? <laughs> <laughs> so we can have gun laws in this country. You would think. Well, you, you I, can't have sawed-off shotguns. Oh. Well, I mean, just the way people talk, you'd think we could never have not one single gun law in this country. But this, you're telling me we actually currently have gun laws in this country. So it, it has cannot, been done, and it's so it can be done. To the best of my knowledge, you cannot saw off your shotgun <laughs> is a law to a certain limit. Correct. I'm just pointing out I that know, we I do know. actually, in fact... Have laws limiting what you can do with guns in this country. I was just trying to bring it back to the middle days and just try to <laughs> not go. <good. laughs> now it's worth noting with this this the sawed-off shotguns that Randy didn't sell guns, and this was presented to him as a way to make some extra cash. I mean, keep in mind he's been talking to this guy for three years now, and he doesn't know this guy's an informant, so he's viewing this guy as a friend. And he says, hey, you want to make some extra cash? If you saw off these barrels for these couple shotguns I have, you know, Mm -hmm. get some extra money here. And he also didn't jump at the idea of this immediately. Like he knew he fully knew it was illegal, uh, but he was talked into it by the ATF informant. Hmm. Okay, I get that. Still a felony. So, yeah. And you're getting into a gray area there where the entrapment stuff's hard. Is that entrapment, though? Is it? I, I don't know. I mean, I can't read you the, the 
They didn't Book force definition him to for do entrapment, it. But. They didn't force him to do it. Look, if you're not, if he, if this guy was not hanging around with Nazis, and yeah, he didn't have to show off for three years. Guns. He didn't yeah. have to show off for three years. Yeah. It's the, I it's guess an, it's debatable. An, the ATF is not completely innocent here. Nobody's blameless. But and, and I think we're going to have this conversation a lot throughout the next month. There are shitty people on both sides. Sure. And I mean, between this and Waco, especially, like the government was at fault for a lot of things. Sure. Well, I think too in that documentary, there's that defense lawyer that that's talks about this practice and they're like this is what the federal government does in these situations Mm -hmm. i mean this is just standard practice of the federal government to flip people and make informants sure they hook a small fish and they trade up that's just how it works you don't put yourself in that situation yeah which is not great probably also probably not the best practice no but it is what it is that's how you get people at the top that's how it works what are we gonna do about it in november 1989 Randy Weaver accused the ATF informant of being a spy for the police. He later wrote that he had been warned by a guy named Rico V. The informant's handler, Herb Byerly, ordered him to have no further contact with Randy Weaver. And eventually, the FBI informant, this Rico Valentino guy, outed the ATF informant to the Aryan Nation security. So this kind of turned into a whole shit show of people these informants getting outed. So there was an FBI informant who outed the ATF informant to the Aryans. Right. That's already confusing. Yeah. Also sounds like yeah. great practice. Just out your fellow government employee. <laughs> put his well, but, life the, but risk. these guys are informants. They're people that the government flipped. They're not actual agents. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, You're right. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. These were guys involved in this shit that did something wrong. And then the government went to them and said, Hey, yeah, either you're right. Talk, I'm thinking more undercover. Inform? I'm just thinking more undercover. These are just right. more informants. If you're an informant, you're already a scumbag, probably. So now you're just going to do whatever it takes to get yourself out of any trouble. Mm-hmm. In June 1990, ATF agent Byerly attempted to use the sawed-off shotgun charges leverage to get Randy Weaver to act as an informant for his investigation into the Aryan Nations. When Randy refused to become a, quote, snitch, the ATF filed gun charges in June 1990. They also claimed that Randy was a bank robber with criminal convictions, and those claims were completely false. At the time, Randy Weaver had no criminal record. In the subsequent Senate investigation, after this all, all this shit went down, they found, quote, Weaver was not a suspect in any bank robberies. Where the hell did they get that from? This is, the th- this is like the thing where, like Mike said, nobody's a, or everybody does some shit wrong here. I mean, we're going to see... This, the ATF just pulled this out of the clear blue sky. Mm. It seems like they just made this shit up. And we're going to see in Waco, they do a lot of shit that they just kind of make up. Damn. A federal grand jury later indicted him in December of 1990 for making and possessing, but not for selling illegal weapons in October of 1989. The ATF concluded it would be too dangerous for arresting agents to arrest Randy Weaver at his property. So in January of 1991, ATF agents posed as broken down motorists and arrested Randy Weaver when he and Vicky stopped to assist them. God damn. Pretty smart, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Weaver was told of the charges against him, released on bail, and told that his trial would begin on February 19th, 1991. On January 22nd, the judge in the case notified the attorney Everett Holfmeister that he would be serving as Randy's attorney. On that same day, Randy called the U.S. probation officer Carl Richens 
and told him he was instructed to contact him on that date. Richens didn't have the case file at the time, so he told Randy to leave his contact information, and Richens would contact him when he received the paperwork. And according to Richens, Randy did not give him a telephone number. which He didn't have a phone. I, right. I mean, the guy didn't have any like running water or nothing. So. But Weaver did call him initially. For, from somewhere. From somewhere. So he could get to a phone. The defense counsel sent letters to Randy on January 19th, January 31st, and February 5th, asking Randy to contact him to work on the defense within the federal court system. On February 5th, the trial was changed from February 19th to February 20th to give participants more time to travel following a federal holiday. President's court- Day. In case you guys were wondering out there, it's President's <laughs> yeah, Day. Yeah, I, I when I was writing this, I didn't know what it was. It's President's Day. Was. <laughs> the court clerk sent letters. The court clerk sent a letter to the parties informing them of the date change, but the notice was not directly sent to Randy Weaver, only his attorney. On February 7th, the probation officer sent Randy a letter indicating that he now had the case file and needed to talk with him. This letter had a typo on it and it indicated that Randy's trial date was set for March 20th. So instead of February 20th, it had a typo and said March 20th. This is the bureaucratic nightmare. It is. On February 8th, Holfmeister again attempted to contact Randy by letter informing him that his trial was to begin on February 20th and that Randy needed to contact him immediately. Holfmeister also made several calls to individuals who knew Randy asking them to have him call. Holfmeister told U.S. District Court Judge Harold Ryan he did not hear from Randy before the scheduled court date. When Randy didn't appear for court on February 20th, Judge Ryan issued a bench warrant for failure to appear in court. On February 26th, Ken Keller, a reporter for the Kootenai Valley Times, telephoned US probation, the U.S. Probation Office and asked whether the reason that Randy didn't show up for his court date on February 20th was because the letter that was sent to him by his probation officer had the wrong date. Upon finding a copy of the letter, Chief Probation Officer Terrence Hummel contacted Judge Ryan's clerk and informed them the incorrect date on the letter. Hummel also contacted the U.S. Marshal Service and Randy's attorney informing them of the error. Regardless of them finding out, the judge refused to withdraw the bench warrant. There's problem number one. The U.S. Marshal Service did agree to put off executing the warrant until after March 20th to see whether or not Randy would show up in court on that day. So the marshals gave him the benefit of the doubt. If he were to show up on March 20th, the, the Department of Justice claimed that the, all indications are that the warrant would have been dropped. Instead of waiting to see whether or not Randy would show up on March 20th, however, the U- United States Attorney's Office called a grand jury on March 14th. The attorney's office failed to provide the grand jury with his probation officer's letter, which contained that error of March 20th, and the grand jury issued an indictment for failure to appear. You know what my biggest thing with this, though, is? Mm. If Weaver would have fucking returned a call to his attorney or responded to one of the several letters that were sent to him, some of this might have been cleared up. Absolutely. Motherfucker didn't do it. He lived on a mountain with no phone. So to this point, I have no sympathy for him. He was sent letters. He was told to call. He responded with nothing. I'm confident even if he had the February 20th date, he would not have shown up. So I think you can probably say that. At this point, and I'm not saying my story is not going to change because I do think he was treated unfairly. At this point, 
I don't have any problem with what's been done. Okay. Motherfucker, respond to your attorney. You, you called him initially, so you had trust in him. Now, all of a sudden, you're just going to say, oh, he's part of the government. I'm not going to trust him. Mm-hmm. Motherfucker, he's your only hope. You're and, not wrong. And we see what, what your distrust further gets you into. Yeah. You might as well at least call him back. He's trying to represent you. I agree with that. There's obviously some bureaucratic bullshit going on here. But yeah, I, I agree with you. He should have just called and, and figured it out. But yeah. everyone knows that when you're dealing with the federal government, there's bureaucratic stuff. Right. And bureaucratic bullshit is going to be the hashtag of the next of the month of May for us <laughs> for the show. That's just, that's just how it works. But yeah, also, like your attorney's trying to contact you. He sent you four or five letters before the initial date. You didn't get back to him once. Yeah, like if you were under indictment for federal weapons charges, wouldn't you want to get a hold of your attorney? When you think everyone, you think you think your attorney's out <laughs> to get you, I guess. I, I guess. Well, you know what? But if the, he's the one guy who's showing that he's trying to represent mm-hmm. you, why would you not at least meet with them, have them help you as yeah. best you can? That's my thought. All I'm saying is at this point, Randy Weaver did himself no favors, and at this point, I have no sympathy for him. I'm with you. That's going to change eventually. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> well, beginning in February 1991, the U.S. Marshals heavily got involved in this and developed a threat source profile on Randy Weaver. The evolution of that profile was later criticized in a 1995 report by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee for basically making Randy Weaver and his family sound like violent, racist radicals. And there was no basis for these claims. I mean, they, the threat source profile makes them sound like straight-up violent terrorists, and it's just not accurate at all. Mm. Was it because of who they were associating with, or like how do they put that together? I think a lot of it has to do with bureaucratic, uh, just these guys, law enforcement, they're not giving, talking to each other and giving each other the correct information, and mm. they're basing it off, off, you know, it's some of who he associates with, but then there's other things that I read and, and, and saw out there watching a few different things that they weren't talking, like the ATF and the Marshal Service weren't talking together properly to, yeah. to generate this at all. Hmm. Miscommunication of the federal government. Never happens. You don't say. <laughs> when the Weaver case was passed from the ATF to the Marshal Service, no one informed the Marshals of the fact that the ATF had attempted to solicit Randy as an informant. As the law enforcement arm of the federal court, it was the duty of the U.S. Marshals to bring in Randy Weaver, who was now considered a fugitive. Unlike most federal fugitives who flee across state lines or something like that to avoid arrest, Randy just stayed home in his cabin and threatened to resist any attempt to be taken by force. Probably a smart move. Well, what are you supposed to do? I mean, I mean, I would contact my attorney and say, hey, let's help, let's figure something out here. I mean, how are they supposed to deal with the guy that, that does that? No, I, I, from their standpoint, I understand. Yeah. I mean, we already know Randy was known to have an intense distrust of the government, and it's believed that the typo in the Richens letter increased this belief and may have contributed to his reluctance to appear for trial. Randy was clearly suspicious of what he viewed as inconsistent messages from the government and his lawyer, and this inconsistency just further enforced his belief that this was just some big conspiracy against him. He came to believe that he would not receive a fair trial if he were to appear in court, and his distrust grew further when he was falsely told by his magistrate that if he lost the trial, he would lose his land 
and leaving Vicky homeless and that the government would take his children away. I mean, that's that's true. The magistrate did make that threat to him, and it's completely false. That None of that would have happened. So that just furthered him being like, you know what, fuck this, I'm not coming. Was that, when, when did the magistrate say that to him? Like when he was initially... Yeah, I'm curious how that worked. And also, if you would have talked to your attorney, he could have told you that that's not the case. Yeah, and right. That's not how things work. Like, so yeah. he was actually in front of a magistrate at one point? Yes, when he was... Well, he was arrested and processed and bailed out. I guess yeah, that's... And he put up his then. house for un- his bail. It would have had to have been then. But, yeah. Like, that's not how but bail then, works. He wasn't jumping bail. Being convicted is not jumping bail. You're not going to lose your bond, right? Right. No, I yeah, I agree. But again, like you just said, if he would have talked to his attorney, he might have had more information about this. But I guess, again, he's coming from a mindset of complete distrust. Yeah. So he hears that, he probably thinks his attorney's in on it too. Now, I think he's a fucking idiot for that, but yeah, no, that's his mindset. That's how a lot of these guys think, sure. Again, he was a Green Beret. He served this country. Also true. That's just something to think about. Doesn't make you not crazy, though. U.S. Marshal Service officers made a series of attempts to have Randy surrender peacefully, but Randy refused to leave his cabin. Randy negotiated with U.S. Marshals Ron Evans, W. Warren Mays, and David Hunt through third parties from March 5th to October 12, 1991, when Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron Howen directed that negotiation should stop. The U.S. Attorney directed that all negotiations would go through Randy's court-appointed counsel. However, Randy did not have any contact with his attorney and refused to talk with him. The marshals then began preparing plans to capture Randy to stand trial on the weapons charges and his failure to appear in court on the correct date. Although the marshals stopped the negotiations as ordered, they still made other contact with Randy. On March 4, 1992, U.S. Marshals Evans and Jack Clough drove to the Weaver property and spoke with Randy, posing as real estate prospects. Sneaky. So they weren't, yeah. <laughs> you want to sell a couple acres of this mountain land? <laughs> At a March 27th U.S. Marshals headquarters meeting, Art Roderick codenamed this operation Northern Exposure. So clever. So clever on yeah. these operation names. <laughs> operation Northern Exposure is going to commence now. <laughs> Surveillance teams were dispatched and cameras were set up to record activity at the Weaver's residence. Marshals observed that the Weaver that Randy and his family responded to vehicles and other visitors by taking up armed positions around the cabin until the visitors were recognized. Following a flyover by a hired helicopter for Geraldo Rivera's show, now it can be told for uh, for TV on April 18, 1992. U.S. Marshal Service headquarters received media reports that Randy had shot at the helicopter. You know that asshole lives in Cleveland now and does a radio show? Geraldo? Yeah. Does he yeah. really? Yeah. In Cleveland? Yeah. His wife was from here or something. Man, he does a show on the local AM station. Hmm. 1100? Yeah. What time? I don't know. I don't listen to that garbage. I just know he's on there. There's no way. Yeah. Is he syndicated? I, I don't know. Man, he's a big name. He's an asshole. I understand, but... Like he's still a big name. That's I, guess, I didn't yeah. fucking know that. Yeah, I've never even seen like advertisements for him. I guess that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's sometimes it's probably with, on before Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, probably. And fucking who's in the afternoon? Trevisano. Mm. Glenn Beck's on there, isn't he? Right. <sighs> yeah, Glenn, Glenn Beck's, Beck's on. on so it's ten to twelve. Well, no one fucking cares. It's Glenn Beck, <laughs> then it's Rush, and then <sighs> uh, Triv. 
great lineup. I don't think Triv is as conservative as those other people, though. He's just dumb. Yeah, he's just not. <laughs> he's the dumbest person I've ever heard on radio. I don't like him much at all. I've heard dumber on radio, Dave. <laughs> See the two people who are on before him. Geraldo. And, and Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Geraldo does some good stuff every once in a while, like that when he like broke the case on the... Uh, Al the Capone's story. vault when it was empty? No, no, no. With the uh, <laughs> like the, the mental institution in New York, like way the back Bellevue. in the day. Like, yeah. yeah, like he does something. He's like done some good stuff. Yeah, but then yeah. A lot of other times he's a fucking idiot, man. Also, the man rocked mm-hmm. a fantastic mustache for a long time. Does he still have That's the mustache? True. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. At all, though. Well, this is one of his moments where he probably shouldn't have uh, paid to have a helicopter fly over this <laughs> yeah, fucking guy's not. house and get, inv- and get involved in this shit. So that day in Idaho, the U.S. Marshals team was installing surveillance cameras overlooking the Weaver property. The field report for April 18th filed by Marshal W. Warren Mays, reported seeing a helicopter near the Weaver property, but not hearing any shots fired. Randy was on record via interview with a local newspaper as having denied that anyone fired at the helicopter. Further, the helicopter pilot, Richard Weiss, eventually gave evidence in an FBI interview denying that Randy fired at the helicopter. And a report in 1994 states that when, quote, Indictment of Weaver was presented to the grand jury. The prosecution had evidence that no shots had been fired at the helicopter. So even though there was no evidence of this, the media reports that Randy had fired on this helicopter became part of the justification later cited by U.S. Marshal Wayne Duke Smith and FBI hostage relief team commander Richard Rogers in drawing up the Ruby Ridge rules of engagement on August 21st through the 22nd of 1992 which which we'll be getting to in just a minute also in spite of richard weiss's repeated denials that shots had been fired at his helicopter u.s attorney ron howen would would charge that as overt act 32 of the weaver's conspiracy against the federal government randy vicky and harris fired two shots at the helicopter so there's zero proof that that happened no but they're just moving forward with it hard yeah using it to out of control yeah Operation Northern Exposure was then suspended for three months due to confirmation hearings for United States Marshal Service Director Henry E. Hudson. We'll be right back. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment that's totally convenient. At BetterHelp, you can get help on your own time at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. They offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is kept completely confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. BetterHelp offers 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states and also has services available worldwide. Sign up is simple, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Financial aid is also available for those who qualify. And remember, BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Necronomapod listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code NECRO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com necro. 
Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash necro. In those three months, the U.S. Marshals had not dropped the case, and on Friday, August 21st, 1992, six marshals were sent to scout the area to determine a suitable place away from the cabin to ambush and arrest Randy Weaver. So they let him go for a while. I mean, it's been, what, since February, March that they signed the warrant, right? Or the bench warrant. Yeah. When they took the three months off to have the new director sworn in and probably plotting out whatever this yeah. was going to be. So it's not like a huge priority, you know, public enemy number one Well, and they situation. said in that documentary they felt the time was on their side. They didn't yeah. have to He's rush He's not going things. anywhere. Yeah. He's sitting in the mountain with no water, electricity. Right. Yeah. He smells terrific. Shitting downstream. <laughs> the marshals, dressed in military camouflage, were equipped with night vision goggles and M16 rifles. Deputy U.S. Marshals Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and Bill Deegan formed the reconnaissance team, while Deputy U.S. Marshals David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris formed an observation post team on the ridge north of the cabin. At one point, Roderick threw two rocks at the Weaver cabin to test the reaction of the dogs. Spoiler alert, the dogs started barking. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Dogs never do that. So Randy's friend, Kevin Harris, and Randy's 14-year-old son, Sammy, came out and followed Sammy's dog, Stryker, to investigate. Harris said that they were hoping that the dog had noticed some type of animal since the cabin was out of meat and they were going to go kill it. The recon team, which was Marshalls, Roderick, Cooper, and Deegan, initially retreated through the woods in radio contact with with the op team, but later took up hidden defensive positions. Later, op team marshals and the Weavers both claimed that the Weavers' dogs were alerted to the recon team marshals in the woods after neighbors at the foot of the mountain started their pickup truck. The recon team marshals retreated through the woods to the, quote, Y junction in the trails 500 yards west of the cabin, out of sight of the cabin. So this is like where this trail, it meets like in an exact Y formation. Mm -hmm. Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris followed the dog striker on foot through the woods while Randy Weaver, also on foot, took a separate logging trail. Vicki and her daughters, Sarah, Rachel, and 10-month-old baby, Alishaba, remained at the cabin, at first appearing anxious to the op team, but later appearing relaxed because the op team had a view on, mm-hmm. on everybody in the cabin. Randy encountered the marshals at the Y, Roderick claimed to have yelled, quote, back off, U.S. Marshal, upon sighting Randy. And Cooper said he shouted, quote, stop, U.S. Marshal. By their account, the dog and the boys came out of the woods about a minute later, and a firefight erupted between the Marshals and Sammy Weaver and Harris. A later ballistics report showed that 19 rounds were fired in total during the firefight. Art Roderick was shown to have fired one shot from an M16. Bill Deegan fired seven rounds from an M16. And it's worth noting with Deegan, which is what we're going to get into, that for forensics showed that he was moving forward at least 21 feet while shooting. He wasn't retreating. Larry Cooper fired six rounds from a 9mm Colt submachine gun. Sammy Weaver to have fired three rounds from a 223 Ruger Mini 14. And Harris to have fired two rounds from a 30 6 Enfield rifle. In the firefight, a shot or shots from Deputy Marshal Roderick killed the Weaver's dog, which was a yellow Labrador retriever, at which time Sammy Weaver is reported to return fire at Roderick. 
after the federal agents began firing, Sammy Weaver was killed by a shot to the back while retreating, and Deputy Marshal Deegan was shot and killed by Harris. So this just took a major fucking turn. It got intense real quick. Yeah, I'll say. A, a simple reconnaissance, just trying to navigate the area and get a feel for everything, turned into a shootout, you know, with the suspects. Yeah. With a, yeah, and a 14-year-old kid getting killed. And a 14-year-old kill, kid getting killed. The version of the firefighter. Well, and a deputy marshal the- getting killed also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, to be fair, his 14-year-old kid, his father gave him a gun to go down and see what was going on. So, he did. You know. He was there to fight. The version of the firefight presented by the deputy marshals, Roderick and Cooper, stated that the dog preceded Kevin Harris and then Sammy Weaver out of the woods. Deputy Marshal Deegan is then presented as challenging Harris, who turned and shot and fatally wounded Deegan before Deegan could fire a single shot. The account proceeds to describe Roderick as shooting the dog once, Sammy firing twice at Roderick, and Roderick firing once again. Roderick and Cooper testified they heard multiple gunshots from the Weaver party. Cooper testified to having fired two three-shot bursts at Harris, seeing Harris fall like, quote, a sack of potatoes, and seeing leaves fly up in front of him, presumably from the impact of the round, which then led Cooper to seek cover. Cooper testified to have seen Sammy run away and then radioing the op team member, Dave Hunt, that he had wounded or killed Harris. So that's their version of the story. Now, Kevin Harris's version of the story differs as follows. Harris reported to them that the dog was followed by Sammy Weaver and then Kevin Harris out of the woods, and the dog ran up to Deputy Marshal Cooper and jumped at him like it was playing with the kids. It was being friendly with him. He then said that the dog ran to Roderick, who shot the dog in front of Sammy Weaver, who then Sammy yelled back, quote, you shot my dog, you son of a bitch, and fired a shot at Roderick. Deegan is then described as coming out of the woods, firing his M16 and hitting Sammy in the arm. Then Harris is described as firing and hitting Deegan in the chest. The Harris's account to the Weavers then has Cooper firing at Harris, who ducked for cover, and Cooper firing again and hitting Sammy in the back, who fell. Harris then describes himself firing about six feet in front of Cooper, forcing him to take cover, whereupon he states having heard Cooper announce that he was a U.S. Marshal. Harris then describes that he checked Sammy's body, found him dead, and ran back to the Weaver cabin. So you got two different sides saying two different people were the aggressors. Right. Pretty Essentially. much, yeah. The marshals saying that the Weavers and Harris were the aggressors, and Weavers and Harris saying that the marshals were the aggressors. And, well, maybe, well, it and all, it, maybe it all started with this dog somehow maybe there, you know, in the mix. Well, and, and the thing, too, that I said you know, that, that's interesting or, or important with this is that you know, forensics and, and ballistics showed that the marshals aren't, weren't telling the complete truth in their version of the story because Deegan didn't just fire one shot and run away. He fired multiple rounds and was moving forward as he was firing. And that, that's proven by the forensics and the ballistics mm, of the yep. incident. Yeah. So, I mean, the truth is somewhere here in the middle, you know. As, as it always is, sure. I mean, that's just blat- their account of that is just blatantly, it's just not true. Is it because they're lying, you think, or is it because in that type of situation, you know, memories are not always accurate? I mean, if you want my, just my opinion on the story. That's why I'm asking you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend to to believe that the dog went running down and they shot the dog. I I, I think the more the truth follows on on the Weaver's side of the story and and, and Kevin Harris. Okay. But 
the the, the Weaver and Harris always also say the dog jumped at them in a playful way like it did with everyone else. If you're in that tense of a situation and a dog's barking and running at you and then jumps at you, you're not going to necessarily see that in a playful way. No, no, I'm not saying, yeah. So, I, so I, I'm not saying I would fault them for shooting that dog, necessarily. Wait a minute. And I don't, kind of dog, I don't, it was a Labrador, though. Okay, but it's still barking, it's running at you, and then it jumps on you. Yeah, I guess. Cops shoot dogs all the time, though. I see those stories all the time. There was one in our town a couple years ago. I don't Cops know. on the driveway, killed a dog right in broad daylight. But my thought more is, like, this intense situation. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't blame them for shooting the dog. Eh. That's my thought. It's, I don't blame them for shooting the dog. Can't really put yourself in that spot, sure. If and if, if what, it read if it went in that as that was described, yeah, and that a dog comes out of nowhere barking, running at you, and then jumps on you or is trying to jump on you, I don't know. I don't blame them for that. Fair enough. It was a lab, though. I don't think I'd take a chance. Okay. In general, you know, and the other thing too that I I don't know what exactly would constitute any type of like standing your ground thing. But this is northern Idaho. I don't think there's any stand your ground. I think it's just kill or be killed up here. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure what, up here like, in the Ruby Ridge. Like Sammy Weaver definitely shouldn't have fired a shot back. But I don't know. I mean, if you base it off of everything, like if you're going solely off their story, they were never told that these were U.S. Marshals. That they the Marshals never announced who they were originally. So in this kid's mind, yeah this random guy just shot and killed his dog and there and there's other guys there that have m16 so i'm shooting i guess I, still illegal you know, someone shoots your dog i don't think you could just shoot them unless, I mean, if yeah, armed I people are encroaching on your on your land yeah. with weapons you, it you was know, this yeah. their property still was yeah. this still oh, their yeah. property yeah yeah, okay. yeah. but the marshals so I, claim I, they shouted a surrender order out right and these that, guys and that's where knew, it gets right. it gets very you know who yeah. the fuck knows and the, these guys knew there was an open warrant they were hiding out up there it wasn't a big you know right. secret that's why they were patrolling with guns so yeah so you know yeah it's it's very touchy and i think the 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 reasoning for the marshals to go ahead and lie or not not i don't want to say lie but whether or not they lied or just misremembered, I don't know. But if they did lie, I think the motive behind that would be because a 14-year-old kid was shot and killed in the incident. You have to justify that tactically. Yeah. Sure. After the firefight at the Y, Marshals Hunt and Thomas went to, from the hillside to a neighbor's house to call for assistance from the U.S. Marshals Crisis Center, while Marshals Norris Cooper and Roderick stayed with Deegan's body at the Y. Randy and Vicky went to the Y and retrieved Sammy's body. Randy, Vicky, and Harris placed Sammy's body in a guest cabin near the main cabin. In the aftermath of the firefight on August 21st, U.S. Marshals Dave Hunt requested immediate support from Idaho law enforcement and alerted the FBI that a marshal had been killed. And this is kind of where it's like shit just got super fucking real on the government side because now an, uh, an agent has been shot and killed. Yeah, that's what happens. They don't yep. like that. I believe, what did the documentary watch say? When uh, police get shot, they get pissed. They, they they sure do. So now, like, I mean, this is like war. This is war at this point in their mind to an extent. Like More they're less, They're going yeah. to get the people, the bad people, sure. who shot this, this U.S. Marshal who is, quote, one of the good guys. Following Hunt's phone call, the Marshals, the Marshal Service Crisis Center was activated under the direction of Duke Smith, Associate Director 
for operations and the Marshall Service Special Operations Group was alerted to deploy. In response to the call, the Boundary County Sheriff's Office mobilized and Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus declared a state of emergency in Boundary County, allowing the use of the Idaho National Guard Armory. So that's what I mean. Shit got real fucking... It's picking up. Shit got real... Mm-hmm. Picking up. FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. responded by sending the hostage rescue team from Quantico to Idaho. Special agent in charge Eugene Glenn of, Salt, of the Salt Lake City FBI office was appointed site commander with responsibility for all active individuals from the FBI, ATF, and the U.S. Marshals. A standoff ensued for 11 days as several hundred federal agents surrounded the house and negotiations for surrender were attempted. By Saturday, August 22nd, special rules of engagement were drafted and approved by FBI headquarters and the Marshal Service for use on Ruby Ridge. According to the later Ruby Ridge report to the Department of Justice in 1994, the Ruby Ridge rules of engagement were as follows. One, if any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement has been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize that individual. Two, if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children. Three, if compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. Four, any suspects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. What if it's a cute little chihuahua? Can they take the chihuahua out? If compromised by any dog, (laughs) the dog can be taken out. Okay. Now, it's interesting. I wish I said cat. I wish I'd said cat. Because I'm compromised by every cat, and I'll fucking shoot to kill. That's why they call me the pussy slayer in college. (laughs) It's interesting to note, going forward with this, that when the rules of engagement say adult male it didn't say that initially it just said adult and right before they deployed it to the rest of the agents they flipped it so mm. that vicky weaver wouldn't get mixed up in this yeah the rules of engagement were communicated to agents on site including communication to the hostage rescue team snipers slash observers prior to deployment some deployed fbi agents in particular the snipers and observers would later describe that these special rules of engagement that they just made up for Ruby Ridge as a, quote, green light or a, quote, to just shoot on sight. That's how they looked at this. Mm. What's interesting is, like, what you're about to, like, go through here is how different these rules were interpreted by different people. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Which is terrifying and not good. Well, I think it's like what you guys said, that this was war at this time. I think some of these guys still viewed this as uh like a wait a second this and we're going to get into a bunch of quotes from people here where the like wait this is way too aggressive right and then other and then other agents and then the snipers are like fuck this they killed a cop and we're dropping them this and this is shoot on site this yeah. is where you need leadership to come in and have a firm stance and and give a directive and i i think that's what was lacking here there w- it was very vague with all of this. 
And I think maybe that's what the government wanted was it for it to be vague. Maybe that's more protection for them. If they, you know, if they were vague and they gave out these rules and they said, okay, now from whatever happens here happens here. What they needed was firm leadership saying, here's the situation we're working with and here's the outcome we want. Now go get this job done. You don't need marshals going into this thinking this is war. That's not okay. Because yeah. this is not war. You have you have American citizens that you just need to go get and bring back and arrest. Well, this is the FBI side of it, and I don't think they were prepared for this specific scenario. I, I don't, yeah. I don't think a lot of the government was prepared for this. The, it just got out of hand. On August 22nd, the second day of the siege, between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m., the FBI hostage rescue team, sniper slash observer teams, were briefed and deployed to, to the cabin on foot. According to the Ruby Ridge report to the Department of Justice, there were various views and interpretations taken of these rules of engagement by members of FBI SWAT teams in action at the Ruby Ridge site, including describing them as, quote, severe and, quote, inappropriate, and as, quote, strong and a, quote, departure from the standard deadly force policy as, quote, inappropriate and of the sort that he, quote, had never been given before. The latter of these two members stated further that, quote, other SWAT team members were taken back by the rules and that most of them clung to the FBI's standard of deadly force policy. And a further team member responded to the briefing on the rules of engagement as, quote, you've got to be kidding me. So most of these and guys was, were shocked that they were deploying under such rules. I, I mean, this basically was a, you see somebody, you shoot to kill at this point. It was a this hit is, team, more or less. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's mm-hmm. insane. It's just not that kind of situation. You're already dealing with people who don't trust the government. And I know they, they can't be concerned with that necessarily, but this doesn't help their cause. Nope. Shoot to kill a guy who simply, at this point, simply missed a court date. Well, they killed the marshal. But they don't know for sure who killed the marshal. Well, he missed a court date, which started all of this. Well, sure. Now, those quotes that, we, that I just read were from, from a couple guys in the FBI that were involved in this. But most of the snipers accepted the rules of engagement as they're just modifying the deadly force policy. Examples included hostage, really, hostage rescue team sniper Dale Monroe, who saw the rules of engagement as a, quote, green light to shoot armed males on site, and hostage rescue team sniper Edgar Wenger, who believed that if he observed adult males, he could use deadly force but he was to follow standard deadly force policy for all other individuals. Fred Lansley, the FBI hostage negotiator at Ruby Ridge, was, quote, surprised and shocked at the rules of engagement. He said they they were the most severe rules he had ever heard in, in his over 300 hostage situations and characterized the rules of engagement as being inconsistent with standard policy. A later Senate report criticized the rules of engagement as, quote, virtual shoot on site orders. Yeah, sounds like it. Before negotiators arrived at the cabin, FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi, from a position over 200 yards north and above the Weaver cabin, shot and wounded Randy Weaver in the back with a bullet exiting his right armpit while he was lifting a latch on the shed to visit the body of his dead son. Then, as Randy, his 16-year-old daughter Sarah, and Kevin Harris ran back toward the house, Horiuchi fired a second bullet killing Vicki Weaver and wounding Kevin Harris in the chest. Vicki Weaver was standing behind the door through which Harris was entering the house, holding their 10-month-old baby, Alishaba, in her arms. And in the documentary, they 
interview Sarah, and she said like her mom's brains blew all over her. Yeah, yeah. She said she was standing next to her, and yeah. she felt it hit her face. They yeah. also said these were snipers that could hit a dime from two hundred meters out. Yeah, and they can't hit these fuckos running back. You just you can't take a shot like that. No, it's irresponsible. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't include it in the outline because it gets it gets crazy intense. But there are there were so many congressional hearings and all kinds of stuff about the constitutionality of him firing that second shot. And it was determined that he had no right to fire another shot. Mm. I would say well, not. And yeah. The biggest thing, and I know you're going to touch on this, Ian, is they didn't even know that they hit Vicky nor killed her. Nope. And so when they're continuing their, their negotiations to come out of the house and they're yelling through like their, their megaphone and their speaker, they're talking to Vicky telling her that she needs to come out with the kids. Mm hmm. And Randy sees that as just them mocking that they killed Vicky because he thinks they know that they killed her. Right. Yep. Which just adds more fuel to the fire. And I can't remember which FBI guy it was, uh, but the, the quote that I read was when they found out, it was like, you know, kind of like, great. The only thing anybody's going to remember from this is that the FBI killed an innocent woman while she was holding her 10 month old baby. Yeah. yeah. Sure enough. Both FBI HQ and site commanders in Idaho reevaluated the situation based on the information they were receiving from the U.S. from U.S. Marshals Hunt, Cooper, and Roderick about what happened on August 21st. On August 23rd, repeated attempts to negotiate with Randy via Bullhorn failed, with no response from the cabin. And like you said, Mike, they were they were aiming it at Vicky because they thought she could reason with him, but she's dead. They don't know it, and he views this as them like you said, mocking him and yeah. fucking with him that they killed his wife. Right. They're, they're in the, in the, the bullhorn talking to, or the air horn talking to Vicky taunting, saying, come out, come send your kids out. Meanwhile, Randy's inside thinking they're mocking him because they know that they already shot his wife. Yeah. That I'd be hostile too. And there's still no phone, so they can't get him on the phone. Right. They're just doing this bullhorn stuff. Again, I'm not um, siding with the weavers. But yeah. you can see how this goes both ways. Of course. On about Monday, August 24th, the fourth day of, this, of the siege on the Weaver family, FBI Deputy Assistant Director Danny Colson, who was unaware that Vicki Weaver had been killed, wrote a, memo, wrote a memo with the following content. Quote, something to consider. Number one, charge against Weaver is bullshit. Two, no one saw Weaver do any shooting. Three, Vicki has no charges against her. Four, Weaver's defense. He ran down the hill to see what his dog was barking at. Some guys in camis, which means camouflage, shot his dog, started shooting at him, killed his son. Harris did the shooting. He is in a pretty strong legal position. That's, All absolutely correct. That's very fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the standoff was ultimately resolved by civilian no negotiators, including Bo Greitz, to whom a griever agreed to speak. Now, I never I heard of know, this guy. Yeah, I guess he was like a third-party candidate that the like radical right really loved at yeah, the time. Yeah, I saw him on the documentary. I never heard of that guy. Yeah, they talk about him in that Waco show too. Oh yeah, at the what the like the first episode. Okay, because I'm of sure a he showed up at Waco, right? It's more no, no oh, but they at the beginning of the Waco series they do a Ruby Ridge oh, okay thing, and he's there too. But yeah, I mean he he was essentially the same kind of person as Randy Weaver. Hmm. 
he was a little bit more. And they actually said he was a third party candidate for president in 1992. Yeah, it's too bad he didn't win. Yeah. Isn't that far right? Awesome. Yeah. Well, maybe he took away some votes from uh, George Bush. That's True. why Clinton got in. Maybe so. That was the difference well, maker. And Ross Perot. Also, see all these people. It was a conspiracy <laughs> to get fucking Clinton in there. Well, in the documentary, too, the first time that Bogrates goes up there and starts talking, he's the one that finds out that Wiki or Vicky Weaver had been killed. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, hey, you guys they really no f- fucked it up this time, FBI. No clue. No yeah. clue. Nope. It, and well, see, and that's the thing is when they, when they announced that, when the FBI, the guy the, from Salt Lake City, that, that FBI agent Glenn announces that to the media... I mean, they already had people out there protesting this thing. Yeah, a lot of people. And when and when they announced that, people flipped the fuck out. And there, you can see it in the protest. There's a video with one guy yelling at the at the agents, saying, "You started a war." Yeah. And I mean, we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks. This is that's exactly how a lot of people viewed it's this. It's spread. And, it's spread throughout the country. There was all kinds and, of crazy stuff. There was a, a truck, uh, a truck full of like skinheads that tried to drive through and deliver guns up to Randy Weaver. That, yeah, like they stopped him at yeah. the checkpoint. Like, Motherfuckers, where are you going? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and you, and you know damn well that the Aryan nations, it, the leaders of the Aryan nations, and any leaders of all these other groups viewed this as the per the perfect possible outcome to this situation because mm-hmm. now they they could say see all this stuff we've been telling you about the federal government for all these years how they're going to come take your guns yep. and they're come come after your families well here it is they just killed this guy this guy's son they killed his wife and this and is an the all, first shot of the war. 100%. In all fairness to this situation, and I'm not ever going to agree with the Aryan Nation, and I'm not ever going to agree with these uh, these militia fucks, whatever, but when you have Vicki Weaver, who was not essentially a part of this and was not on that necessarily that shoot-to-kill list, was killed while they were trying to shoot somebody else, you can understand their rage and their anger over this. Like, that, that, that really... Gives them ammunition. Well, that's why I said it. this is the perfect possible outcome for all those leaders of those groups to go Absolutely. back and say that this is the first yeah. shot of the war. Well, the government would tell you the first shot of the war was when the U.S. Marshal got killed. Yep, yeah, right. So through the through through Bo Greitz, he was able to get Randy Weaver to let Kevin Harris out of the house because, like we said, he kevin harris had been shot and he was in a lot of he was in a lot of medical problems and he had asked randy a couple times to just kill him to put him out of his you know to end his suffering so randy agreed to let kevin harris out on august 30th he was flown by air force medical evacuation helicopter to sacred heart medical center in spokane and then also, Randy allowed the removal of Vicky's body, and Bogrites oversaw her being removed from the cabin. FBI hostage rescue team commander gave Bogrites a deadline to get the remaining weavers to surrender, or else the standoff would just be resolved in a tactical assault. Randy and his daughters surrendered the next day. Both Harris and Weaver were arrested. Harris was in serious condition at Sacred Heart, but the U.S. Marshals did not allow his parents to see him or talk by telephone until Monday evening after a federal court order was issued. Randy's daughters were released to the custody of relatives, although there was some consideration given to charging Sarah, who was 16, as an adult. Which I believe they did not end up doing. No. That would be ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Randy was transferred by military military helicopter to the airport at Sandpoint, then flown by U.S. Marshal Jet to Boise and given a brief medical examination at St. Luke's Medical Center. He was held at the Atta County Jail and arraigned in federal court the following day, Tuesday, September 1st. Randy and Kevin Harris were charged with a variety of offenses, including the first-degree murder of U.S. Marshal Deegan. Their trial in U.S. District Court in Boise began in April 1993 and was presided over by Judge Edward Lodge. Randy's defense attorney, Jerry Spence, rested his case in mid-June without calling any witnesses for the defense, instead seeking to convince the jury through cross-examination aimed at discrediting government evidence and witnesses. Randy was ultimately acquitted in July of all charges except for missing his original court date and violating his bail conditions for which he was sentenced in October to 18 months and fined $10,000. Which is what he would have got for the sawed-off shotgun charge in the first place and probably would have served seven months, right? Yeah. Just all would have been avoided. Oh, right. Credited with time served and good behavior, Randy served less than 16 months and was released from Canyon County Jail in Codwell in mid-December. Kevin Harris was also acquitted of all charges. The Weavers were awarded a $3.1 million settlement from the U.S. government, and Kevin Harris was awarded a $380,000 settlement from the government. So this has to be seen as a win for the anti-government militia, right? Propaganda-wise, sure. Yeah, propaganda-wise, yeah. And I mean, why do you even say propaganda-wise? No. I mean, there were people came out winning money from the government— yeah, did barely little time. Like even not even propaganda wise. Like they they won this, and they have the propaganda. An innocent mom was killed. An innocent fourteen year old boy was killed. Propaganda wise, sure. This was a big win, I think, for the militia. Really, I don't even. I don't. Well, I, I think it's more. It's more the because not not all militia people are like doing the Aryan Nations shit. You know, like the really hateful. Groups. I mean, this was a complete win for them. You yeah. know, the the great postscript to this story, though, is like ten years later, the Aryan Nations. Do you know this story? They, a, a mom and her son were driving by the Aryan Nations compound. Their car backfired or something. But the Aryan Nations security guard thought something. They started shooting at him and they dragged him on. I think and like beat him with their rifles. Well, they ended up the Southern Poverty Law Center helped these this family sue. The Aryan Nations, and they got this huge, you know, ten million dollar judgment, and they bankrupted Aryan Nations. They took their compound. I think they took the names of their organization, so they couldn't use it anymore. And then they were going to build like some humanitarian center. They humanitarian built, they center. Beat a mom and her kid. Yeah, the security, the Aryan Nations security mm. guard. But they it, they ended up being able to bankrupt those fucking clowns. Good. So good. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not rooting for them in this story. No, I'm just saying not, the outcome of it was... I, I always love that story. Yeah, not good for the federal government and probably good for everybody else who was rooting against the federal government. And then and, that story makes it even better. But Well, yeah. in, during Randy Weaver's trial and Kevin Harris's trial in 1993, the ATF, was, the ATF and the FBI got themselves in the middle of another huge ordeal trying to save face from this incident. With Waco, and that's where we'll uh, that's where we're gonna pick up next week and, and continue the story with the whole Waco incident. Yeah, they did a great job saving face there. So they probably redeemed their their image. Everything came out squeaky clean in Waco, and uh, everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> right. Okay, we'll see you guys in June. We're going on break. <laughs> We've told you the stories of May. Waco is fucked up. It's not great. 
I want to hear Ian's take because I've watched what I've watched and I have my thoughts. Mm. And I don't like my thoughts, but I want to hear Ian's take. <laughs> I don't like my thoughts. They I don't make like me touch <laughs> my pee pee and I'm ashamed <laughs> of myself. First of all, that is 100% not true. <laughs> we'll talk about Waco next week. That is what it is. But damn, what an intense month. It's We're really a, putting the heat on here. Although a, I think we did a good job tonight. Like, we didn't really get in any intent. We're not going to offend, offend any listeners tonight, I don't think. I mean, Nazis maybe, but... If you're a Nazi <laughs> listening to this show, please hit the unsubscribe button. You're not welcome here. Yeah, I don't know. We told a fair story. That's what we do. We the tell, story's the story. We it tell, is what it is. We tell fair stories. I was having this conversation on Discord with some of our patrons the other day. And we're not all on there all the time. But if you are a patron or if you want to become a patron, get on the Discord. We have a great community of people on there that love to chat about anything from the greasy shit to the, some of the, the intense <laughs> stuff that we talk about on the show. But I think we do a good job on this show of presenting the facts as we know them. And we let people make up their own opinions. And then at the end, we give our own opinions. Sure. And that's it. Or like I did tonight, I'll give my opinion. As I said, at this point, this is how I feel. We don't try to you know, sway our stories one way or another. We just try to tell, tell them as we know them and drink some alcohol. It's like the government was clearly at fault in some of these instances, but I, I think you brought it on yourself, though. Yeah. When you don't respond to your attorney and you're hanging out with people in the Aryan nations and you broke federal law and you're walking around shooting at anyone who walks on your property. Yeah, I agree. If that was anyone else, if that was uh, minorities in the city, there wouldn't be fucking 11 days negotiations. There would have been a tactical SWAT team blowing the house up. So. I don't even think it would have went that far. Yeah. I don't know if there would have been a tactical SWAT team. That's my opinion. Yeah. So anyways, Ian's been quiet through all this while Dave and I just drink and <laughs> talk about what we think about things. So I don't know. It's, Ian, go ahead. I, I mean, the, the biggest, the, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't even know what to say about it. I'll just cut that, cut that out. Well, what? I mean, you got, you got a final thought on Ruby Ridge? Whatever it might be. I just, the whole thing, just like you guys said, he could have he could have just talked to his lawyer. I don't know what the standpoint is. I mean, obviously, that the, the, the one FBI agent that wrote the memo felt that the kid was in the right. He sees these guys in camouflage, shoot his dog, he shoots back, and they fucking kill this kid. And then they come up with this rule of engagement that is, it's literally just a military operation against U.S. citizens. I mean, it's, a shoot to kill is crazy, in my mind, is absolutely crazy. I don't disagree. That you can just shoot and just shoot to kill people when they're not, just if they're holding a weapon walking around, they're not even doing anything with it. You know, I mean, that's Well, especially snipers insane. from 300 yards away. Yeah, it's sure. nuts. I agree. There was, and this could have been simply resolved by either side at any moment and it escalated. And this is where the misinformation and distrust played into it. And we're going to be talking about that for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, and next week we're going to, and it's, it's so mind blowing that while this trial is happening, they basically came right out of this. The ATF came right out of this situation and started an investigation into the Branch Davidians in Waco. And if you want to talk, I mean, we'll get into it next week, but you can talk about law enforcement, the militarization of law enforcement. It's, uh, it gets real fucking intense. That's a teaser if I ever heard one. Yeah. Goddamn. All right. 
I give a thumbs down to Christian identity religion, or whatever the fuck that <laughs> nonsense yeah. horse shit is. Yeah. Bunch of scumbags. I thumbs down Nazis, too, so we're clear on where I stand here. <laughs> I thumbs down white supremacists, also. <laughs> Just Davis going to give you a list of what he make thumbs down. <laughs> and here is Dave's weekly list of thumbs down. <laughs> All right, we got some Patreon shout-outs from the uh, past week or so. Thank you very much to Kim Durham, Brad Wood, Evan Gall, Carl Cannell, Jennifer Vanway, Jen Schaefer, Ryan Sully, Jen Heyman, Catherine St. Germain, Logan Hanley, Hannah Reichelt, Kyle Wright, Danny Kovach, Jennifer Schuf, Susan Hanna, Kristen, Kaylee D'Angelo, Lindsay Bouchard, and Andrew. Thank you very much. We are at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Ian, what do you got for us? For iTunes, I have one for Loud1120 and Mernie H. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave from the socials? From Instagram, Bibiana DeLeon. And from Twitter, Dish Soaps. Thanks, guys. And a, a shout-out to Betty Rottencrotch. She visited Dave's home gynecology uh, <laughs> shop this week so just hope, hope you're feeling better hope you got her cleaned up Dave. yeah we took care of her real good good all right see folks people helping people it's a beautiful thing and i, I also want to point out we're working on opening a, a shop in australia too look at that i mean we need special equipment because the women in australia their vaginas run horizontal not vertical like the women <laughs> in the United States. We have to get special equipment and open up different yeah. kinds of shops there, but we're, we're right. working on it. I also heard they're trifling vaginas down there. <laughs> is that Just right? Trifling. <laughs> yeah. So good luck. We're doing what we can. Good luck in Here the land down under. Oh, boy. All right. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I guess YouTube, if you want to be one of those people that comments weirdly oh. on YouTube. Oh, you know what? what? Yeah. Uh, shout out to shout out to Jeremy on uh, on YouTube. He he said he didn't know if we read comments anymore, but then he started grilling people that shit on us there. So good, good for him. Get him on Castbox next. <laughs> yeah. Shout out, man. We still read them. Yeah. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Necronomapod, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. We got the new one dollar tier, five dollar tier, and ten dollar tier. Check them out. We would uh, love your patronage. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. You guys ready for a cool-down beer? Cheers. <laughs>